Welcome to another episode of the Staying Free podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Adam, also known as AdStats, who used to have a really big Twitter account talking about everything from statistics to economics to libertarianism. And he actually ended up nuking his account last year, which is quite a commendable thing to do when you've got a really big following. But I managed to convince him to come out of retirement for a longer form conversation on the Staying Free podcast. So I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do enjoy it, please give it a share on social media. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give it a five-star review in whatever podcast platform you're using. All right, on to the episode. So you were going to ask me about my Twitter journey. Yeah, let's start there. Let's uh, let's get into it. Your Twitter journey. Let's go. Well, now there's there's an interesting one. So I um, I joined Twitter to talk about crypto. Okay. That's that's what I got. That's what I got on there for. Find out you know what what altcoins are trending and things like that. Because um, it's a good it's a good source of information. You find out that you get kind of this quite good direct marketing with it. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm also quite opinionated. Um, so, Are you? It, um, <laughs> yeah, who would have thunk it? Eh? <laughs> so, um, and I don't, I don't know what it is about those 160 characters, but um, it is 160 characters on Twitter, isn't it? I think it's more now. I think it went to two, two forty, and now I think it's two eighty. Wow, it was 160 when I stopped. But within that, um, apparently, I was quite good at writing concise things. And I think it kind of, it kind of took off with, um, like, my following kind of suddenly, like, I don't want to say blew up, because it's not like I was, like, world famous or anything ridiculous like that. But, you know, I had, I think, 18,000 followers-ish at one point. And, yeah, it was largely just from posting things that were what I thought were common sense. Um, but I suppose the thing that probably made it take off was just the, was representing the data that the government were presenting um, in different ways. And, you know, I know from experience with my work, it's, it's what I do. I'm, I'm, I'm the head of data at where I work. So, it's um i was kind of the go-to guy and i can reframe things i mean i could take the i could take the data that was being presented around the world almost in, in almost exactly the same format bizarrely um and i could make it look good or i could make it look bad and that's what made me think hang on a second if you can frame this in in several different ways um, why is everybody framing it the same way? Why is that always that? Why does that way always result in more control and things like that? So, I think that's what I think. Maybe that's what people liked about it, um, and it kind of carried. It kind of grew from there a bit, just reframing things. And you know, when I'm trying to remember things that I post because it's it's bit, it's funny when you detach from you very quickly forget what it's like. Yeah, but yeah, and as it came as it came to an end, what was um, what was happening was it, there was there was there's three things that kind of um, led into me coming away from Twitter. It was starting to what I would describe as kind of bleed into my personal life. Um, there would be people talk to me about it um, at work and things like that. Like, oh, what you about your this? your Twitter presence? Yeah, that thing. Yeah. Oh right, because because I, I thought you were anonymous. I didn't realise it was connected to your real identity. Um. It. 
It was for a while, um, but I anonymized after I anonymized um, partway through last year when it bled into my personal life a bit. Okay. Um, there was that. There was also the fact that whenever I took time away from it, um, it was almost like a detox. I'd find myself less angry at the world and yeah, and just about general political, the kind of general political situations that kind of go on everywhere. Um, I, I found I was getting kind of less drawn into American political arguments, which is, excuse me, the basis of most of what seems to go on on Twitter. The third, the, the third thing was some other important um, personal news that made me just not want to do it anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and just before, I think on Christmas, I think Christmas Eve or Christmas morning was my last, it was like a goodbye Twitter tweet and that was it. And, um, I've never looked back really other than to get some stuff taken down. Oh, you, Twitter took some stuff down. No, um, just to, just to de-link my name from some right. images and things like that on Google. Cause I, what, I, what, I, what I was thinking was if I'm going to unplug, what I really love is to be able to Google my name, and nothing come up. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, props to you for actually doing it because I think a lot of people, they talk about leaving Twitter and saying, Oh, you know, I'm done with it. You know, I, it's bringing me down. It's too negative, et cetera. And then they actually just carry on and they just, you know, or they leave for like two days and then they're, they're back before you know it. I mean, I guess like aside from me spending, you know, probably too much time on Twitter. I don't think that it actually has a negative impact on my mood or whatever. I think that, I guess over the time, maybe it did at one point, I think probably at the beginning of this whole thing, I definitely, you know, needed to take some some time away from it. I would get frustrated by it. Um, but at this point, I kind of just, I kind of don't. There's something, I seem to have almost been able to develop this um, kind of invisible shield where I can just be like, oh, it just doesn't really affect me on a, you know, my, my emotions are, are relatively unaffected by anything that goes on, even if I can have a heated discussion on there, which to be fair, I don't get into that much. But even if I do, I can kind of keep that distance. I don't feel like it actually gets gets to me at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, obviously like you've uh, you've had a lot of benefits from coming away from it. So that's awesome. I mean, you're missed on there. You're definitely missed on there. You know, you did have a big, really? a big voice. Yeah, I mean, you know, you had a, you had a big voice. And, um, you know, I remember when you when you were leaving Twitter, it was like, oh, man, you know, it's one of the... One of the one of the titans of the kind of uh, anti, <laughs> anti lockdown anti bullshit anti clown world um, has uh, has left us, but um, but yeah, it's good to know that you're you're doing good since leaving. Definitely, definitely, it's weird to be described as a titan of the anti lockdown and anti clown movement. I love it. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I think really there's a lot of people who have just kind of come to the fore who are you know were essentially not big personalities before this who developed a a big following and you know i think it's just kind of a testament to this community that we we don't just kind of i guess just suck up to authority figures or you know oh this person's got a doctor oh this person is a is a a journalist for the bbc or whatever you know this community is just like no we um value people who put good information out there and you know who essentially just you know, for instance, in your case, you're someone who is doing statistical work. And there's a few others on there, and I, I'm kind of forgetting the names now because it's been a while since, I guess that that statistical angle has become less relevant over time. It was very relevant in 2020, um, probably 2021, less so. And now you don't really see much 
from the kind of statistical people, but there was a few of them out there. Um, but yeah, you know, they don't have to be necessarily some famous person or some journalist or some doctor. It's just like, if you are putting out good information, you're doing good work and people, um, you know, appreciate it, then you can kind of become a, a big voice. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. It's kind of a decentralized uh, movement in a way. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So yeah, what's, uh, what's been on your mind since then, now that you've moved away from that? What's, uh, what's the recent ad stats take? <laughs> it's, well, it's the, it's, the continu- it's the continued one, I think, that it was that it was the whole time and it, it's kind of a, a which kind of brings around to the topic um that i wanted to talk about it's kind of a revelation if you will it, it's just how much we outsource all the time whether yeah. that's to politicians whether that's to doctors or whether that's to so-called experts or even whether that's to voices on twitter that you agree with because you know even even outsourcing to someone like me who's just kind of a faceless well i had a face on there with the little laser eyes but it's just a you know a faceless opinion on on the internet and we outsource all sorts of really really big parts of our lives to these people and i categorize it into three things and that's wealth health probably the other way around and then education which is um the, of the three, that's probably the one that I know least about, but I feel like that's the one that probably needs the most diving into. And I might not be the person to do that, but I can certainly probably talk more in more detail, you know, by, and it's, I, it's not without statistics. I thought if I didn't, if I didn't come to this with at least a couple of stats, you'd be disappointed. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. Give me the stats. So exactly. Um, <laughs> Some of the health ones um, are, are quite shocking, really. And I think a lot of people might be quite surprised by them. And I, I won't just kind of dive straight into it because it doesn't really give context to it. And I had to make notes for this because I was thinking that there's probably too much to try and remember. And this is the thing. When I, when I talk about um, people making decisions for themselves and things like that and how outsourcing, because obviously I'm coming from the context of we outsource loads and loads of decisions. This is bad. And I would say that I'm not kind of advocating for people suddenly ignoring their doctor's advice on things. And, you know, and perhaps they're probably one of the ones, one of the examples where it's it's justified. But in every category, when I go health, wealth, education, in every one of those three categories, there's a common there's a common theme, and that's politicians and quote unquote experts. And that's I think that's that's something that's completely different and that's something that i wonder and it loops back around to that education piece at the end of it and i wonder if that's how much of that is we're we're kind of raised to take these things at face value because someone has a certificate that says they know more than you and even on that even on that doctor's front i'll um you know they're, they're not perfect they're making judgment calls generally and I mean, I can remember with myself, I, I, I currently, I've got a, a partially ruptured um, ACL on my right knee. So that's my right, uh, the ligament up the middle of my knee. I've got like a bit of dental floss instead of a full ligament. And I can remember the doctor was absolutely adamant. So the GP was adamant that my leg was fine. 
after three appointments over a six-month period of time. And it was only after a heated conversation that I managed to get my knee scanned. And as soon as that scan got in front of somebody, it was clearly evident that my, my knee was not going to fix itself and that surgery was, acqui- was required. So, I, I mean, they're, not, they're still human. And, you know, a lot of the time they're making judgment calls, quick judgment calls as well, because one of the key points about the NHS in the UK is, is it's free at point of use. And I, I tend to describe that as free at point of abuse. You get people just coming in with every little thing. Um, so doctors don't have time to deal with real issues. And another aspect of it is that's really worth noting, um, especially with, with NHS staff, um, is that quite often what you're getting is the NHS guidance on something and not a medical opinion from a qualified person. Right. And that can extend to anything. Was the seed of this thought process based on the kind of trust the experts COVID stuff or was this something that has happened before or since then? I'm not sure, really. I think um, I think I would probably describe the trust the experts COVID stuff, as you put it there. Um, I would probably describe that as a bit of a, a bit of a, a wake up call. Uh, and I hate the term awake when people say that. Oh, yeah, you know, are you awake? Um, but I actually think for a lot of people who are perhaps sceptical of the current, let's call it the current system. Yeah, um, I think I think a lot of us have been kind of snapped out of it. Um, and what's particularly interesting with that is I've got two brothers and we don't, we're not in regular contact. We're terrible with it. When we, when we talk to each other, we revert back to being like children again. Right. Um, but we all separately came to the same conclusion Okay. at roughly the same time. So I want, I wonder whether you can put it down to, you know, was it, because we can't all be skeptical of things like that but we all had roughly the same we all had roughly this drew roughly the same conclusion about it yeah yeah just going back to your your nhs story like i've had definitely um experiences with the nhs i've actually had it in both directions i've had it in in one case um where it was basically saying there was nothing wrong with me or, or you know you can do do a bit of physio you'll be fine when i knew that i had a problem i knew that i had a problem that just i sensed intuitively was not going to be resolved um, like by myself, by my own actions. I felt like I basically yeah. needed someone to give me a surgery. I just felt it. I just knew. And this was a problem with my ankle. And I was getting told, oh, you know, it's fine. Oh, you know, do these stretches. Oh, do these exercises. And I was just like, I just know that there's something wrong in there. And similar to you, I remember I had a an, I had an X-ray initially. And the, the, was it an X-ray or an MRI? I don't know which, which one it was. Maybe an MRI. And he said, oh, you know, that like there's, we can't see a problem or anything. And I demanded to get a second opinion. And he ended up going and showing it to another doctor who was more senior and then coming back and saying, oh yeah, um, you've got a problem here. We need to do a keyhole surgery. I've also had it in the other direction where I had a very, very mild problem with numbing in my toe or something. And um, I was told that I might have a compressed spinal like disc in my spine and that I need to be, I need to avoid doing any exercise and going, go and get um, an X-ray on my spine because it could be causing um, it to pinch a nerve, which is causing numbness in my toe. And it, in the end, this num- this numbness was absolutely fine. I talked to a physio 
like literally the next day, obviously I was pretty terrified at this news. And the physio told me, oh, um, don't worry about it. You're, um, you know, it'll probably go in a couple of days. Sometimes you just get a bit of numbness. Like I wouldn't, you know, it happens all the time. It's very common. And um, so, yeah, like back, back to your point, there is, I, I think that the NHS, I'm, you know, I, I do have friends who are in the American system. Obviously as a libertarian, I have a bit of a, um, conflict with this because on one hand, I don't think that you have a right to healthcare. I think that if someone has to provide their labor and has to um, provide their time and has to provide their equipment, et cetera, that's not a right. If someone else has to provide it, that's not a right because nobody is, is obligated um, to provide you with anything. So I, I don't think that healthcare is a right. I think that that's a misnomer. Um, however, I know people in the American system and it's pretty bad over there, probably worse than the UK, despite our um, issues with it, you know, um, in the, in the USA, the amount of time you have to spend going through like, doc, you know, legal documents and finance documents and having conversations about costs and people trying to wriggle out of paying for, um, healthcare, et cetera. There's obviously a problem in the USA as well. And I, I think probably as is the answer with a lot of my opinions on these things is decentralization is probably the answer because the reason it's like that over in the USA is because people aren't going to their local doctor and getting work. You know, you have these you know, giant healthcare companies, et cetera, that are kind of um, causing these, or they, they, they're kind of stimulating these um, incentive structures to operate in a certain way. But just to kind of round up this, uh, this, this long monologue I'm giving right here is, um, yeah, I think that trust in the NHS, just as trust in the American system and just in the trust of any kind of um, authority figure is very often misplaced. And and if you do have a hunch about something, I know that you say, hey, you know, like if you've got a hunch, you know, don't listen to it because the doctor probably knows what's best for you. But actually in my experience, if I've got a hunch about something, it's kind of been quite useful to really press on that and try and press someone for an answer because you are ultimately the person who cares the most about your health, right? You're the person who cares the most. A doctor, yeah, they care, they care because they're doing it for a job and they, you know, it's their job to heal you. But their incentive for you to be well is nowhere near as much as your incentive for you to be well. So taking personal responsibility for your health and not just trusting the experts is crucial in my view. And I, and I hope that this period has has led more people to that conclusion. Yeah, I'd agree. And I mean, it kind of, um, you, you kind of segue into the, 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 another topic um, on the healthcare system there in a way. And that's that the, you perhaps... Um, it's probably a bit, probably a bit strong to say you know what's best for you, because sometimes you, sometimes you don't, sometimes you don't know what's best for you. But that, when you talk about the the interests of the doctor in in your well being not being anywhere near the same level that, that your own will be, yeah. I think you can kind of, um, and this this brings into some statistics. You'll be pleased to know. Um, and that's specifically around things like pain medication and antidepressants in the UK. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but about 17% of adults in the UK are prescribed antidepressants. Mm, I didn't know that. Regular dosing. So it's also, you come across a person, it's roughly one in six of the people that you come across day to day are, are taking antidepressants. Now, I know there's a lot of people out there with you know chemical chemical imbalances in the brain that these things will help kind of settle out. But I can't help but think that's can't be one in six people it can't be and it's this it's this thing of well the best solution that i can give you is these drugs that will make you 
feel less sad but really what they're doing is making you feel less yeah yeah if we're if we're honest about it um possibly addictive nhs says no but there are withdrawal symptoms well i mean things that have withdrawal symptoms are normally addictive um because that's what makes them addictive is you want to end the withdrawal symptoms um there's that there's also I, i'm gonna i'm gonna get it up just to remind myself because that's 17 percent really stuck in my head and that's 7.3 million people by the way wow. um the pain the pain meds opioid pain medication so we're talking you know things like valium and stuff like that it's 5.6 million people in the uk this is all from gov.uk by the way you can just google it and it, it will come up which is 13 percent of the adult population general sedatives to deal with anxiety and things like that um benzodiazepines i think i pronounced that roughly right probably mutilated it but that's another 1.4 million there I think how many, I mean, some of those are going to be combinations, but how many people are, are essentially doping themselves on the advice of doctors when when possibly what, what might have helped is, you know, something like therapy to help them process their stress and anxiety or, or, to, or, or to deal with the root cause of what might be making them feel depressed. It's very much a culture of quick fix just have these have these tablets they'll make you feel better rather than dealing with the root cause of the issue the same the same goes for for other for other drugs blood thinners for example and this i don't have the number of people for but i know that some 19.4 million prescriptions a year get filled for blood thinners and so we're talking about mental health and obesity probably with with that i know some people have high blood pressure for other reasons genetic and the like but most of the time it's it's something to do with weight or smoking or something like that and i, I don't tend to give smokers a hard time um because they raise about nine and a half billion pounds in tax revenue a year which kind of pays for the health service that the, the extra strain on the health service does it do we know that i'm interested to know about that because you know i would assume that it does when you think about you know if you're buying like a pack of cigarettes in the uk and it costs like eight quid or something something like six to seven quid of that is like taxation right like most yeah. of the cost it's like you know a good 80 85 percent of the cost i would so i would assume um that it does there is a net contribution to the to the kind of public coffers it's always oh, it's net in profit for for smoking it costs the nhs but it's about five or six billion a year i can't remember the number i haven't looked i haven't looked in a while um but it was um it, it, that was during i think i i think i looked into that for a for because I thought it might be a gem of a tweet that you get all of this bashing of smokers and the strain they put on the NHS and things like that. Well, in actual fact, the there's a net benefit to the government of about, depending on which year you're looking at, about four to uh, about four to five billion profit yeah. from smokers if you offset the cost of their burden on the NHS. What, what's your what's your opinion on that then? Because my my view would be just on that. Um, specific subject is that like if you if you have a public health system then yes the, it probably would make sense to offset the cost um of healthcare with an actual contribution from the people who are engaging in activities which you know are going to contribute to it um but the problem is if you have a public healthcare system where does that end i mean do we start saying like i can see you've got a couple of snowboards behind you on the wall there yep. like do we say well you you're a snowboarder 
Adam. So therefore, you know, you have to pay more because you're engaging in activity. You might break your leg and that's going to cost a lot of money for the NHS. I mean, why should we just punish smokers and not punish skateboarders and not punish sports people and not punish, you know, people who are doing any of the, any variety of activities, you know, um, I just kind of think that you either you either should be consistent across the board and essentially we just have some kind of like really weird VAT system where everybody is paying in taxation what you expect that activity to cost to to the, the kind of public purse or we don't do that. And if we don't do that, then I don't think that there's any justification for having a public health system at all because if you have it, but then you're not kind of having this method of, you know, taxing everyone for what their activities are expected to cost, then you're kind of, some people are subsidizing others, right? Like, you know, I, I might be subsidizing someone else who decides to do, you know, um, mountain biking or something, which I'm sure a lot of people who do mountain biking are going to break a leg at some point. I'm going to be subsidizing them under a public health care system. So this is why I, I yeah, I can, <laughs> so, you, so, you've, so, you, right, so you've got, you've got snowboards and a mountain bike behind you. So you're probably going to cost more to the, uh, more to the healthcare system than I am, right? That you, you might expect that. So yeah, theoretically. Yeah. Th this is why I think that even though I know it seems good and right to always support having a public health care system, et cetera, I don't see the morality in that. I don't see the morality in some people funding the lifestyles of other people, you know, and I wouldn't expect you to fund uh, my lifestyle either. You know, like the, there's there's no doubt activities that I'm going to do that are, that you don't engage in that are uh, risky or dangerous. And I wouldn't expect you to pay for me. So I, I guess my question here is going into that whole debate. Um, what's your what's your ideas surrounding, you know, public health care and where that falls on the kind of or, or where where that contrasts or contradicts libertarian principles well on what you were discussing there with the bizarre vat system you you were describing a tax equivalent of insurance so a risk a risk-based risk-based thing um i feel my my view on it as with most public services if you call them yeah um is probably um and this, this, I'm not going to lie, is inspired by Milton Friedman, um, the OG of libertarianism, well, conservative libertarianism, to be honest. Um, and that's that there is, there is space for a welfare state. It's needed, but it should be a crutch that's required. It should be a crutch that is temporarily required and is something that can then be passed on to the next person when they're in their moment of need and you're not. So my view on kind of any public service, and this would extend to health, welfare, anything, you know, as in cash payouts, things like that. Um, and that would be that there's definitely a need for it in society. Ideally, you wouldn't have it and everyone would be productive. But in the reality of a, mar of a free market situation, some people, some people, you know, won't be as productive. And we're, we're, we're pack animals and humans, that is. Um, and I think society in a community is quite important to us as, it, as it's kind of a royal us that I'm kind of describing everybody. So it won't be to everyone, will it? But, you know, I think in general, society and community is quite important to us. Um, and the basis for what a lot of these systems came from, I think we've lost our way with it in many ways. A lot of these schemes are started, I think, with good intentions. But I'm pretty certain there's a saying about some of the worst atrocities that have ever been committed by humanity have 
have been by people with good intentions. I don't, I, I don't know. That's probably not an exact thing, but I'm pretty certain there's probably a couple of sayings about things like that. Yeah. Um, that's probably a wishy-washy, waffly answer to a question where I say, in principle, I, I'd rather it was all private, but at the same time, I wouldn't mind supporting something for people who genuinely couldn't afford it. I think that I probably agree with you. But then that would be a personal choice in itself, though. Uh, what would? Well, if there wasn't a political system in place, I'd probably make charitable donations for, for things like this. Right, okay, yeah. Because exactly. I think they should be there, but I'd pay what I could afford or what I could justify would be the amount. It, what irks me is when that amount is set by somebody else arbitrarily. Yeah, I'd agree with that. One of the things that comes to mind when we talk about this is that in developing countries where you have little to no um, welfare system, like, you know, the state is not going to look after you if you're um, if you're sick or, or need, etc. But what I notice is that these places, family generally takes care of people way more than we do in the West. It's like you know, if you have a relative who isn't able to live on their own or whatever, they don't go into the old people's home; they go and live with the family. Um, you know, and also just in other ways, like people who are who are really poor, quite often they're cash poor, but they actually, you know. Very often they own the property that they're on. They own the land that they're on. Um, you know, they grow their own food or they have backyard animals or something. They actually are much more self-sovereign. So even though we, we look at them and say, okay, well, yeah, of course they're poor. Um, this, is, this is basically how places like, you know, Vietnam and stuff have been able to weather the storm of um, COVID lockdowns and, and close their, their borders for, you know, over two years because... People, yes, obviously tourism and things, you know, they bring in money and yes, they have other, other aspects of bringing in money like exports, but actually poor people, they don't necessarily need cash flow every day because they actually are relatively self-sustaining. And if they're not, there's people in the community who help look after them or they have family, et cetera, that, you know, the government doesn't need to bear like kind of the brunt of, of, that, um, of that weight. They don't need to just, you know, give everyone money, et cetera. So, to apply this to what we're talking about, it's like, if you don't have that safety net there, normally what happens is society will actually change culturally um, to provide a safety net. And it won't be the government's safety net. It will be a voluntary safety net, which evolves based upon culture and society evolving. And actually, in my view, that's more ethical because nobody is being forced through threat of taxation or through essentially threat of jail to actually provide these things for other people they've they've never known or never met. It's threat, it's threat of violence. Yeah, through threat of violence, exactly. Yeah, I mean that kind of that kind of moves on to the next bit, really, of the of the three pillars of what we um, we royal we society outsource, and that's wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of in a west in a very western sense, this because we you know, and that's um, I, I kind of view that as kind of. Money in general, but I, I, I wrote down here savings, but in reality, it's kind of money in general, how we borrow, how we save, what interest rates we're willing to pay and earn, depending on what our circumstances are, depending on what someone else, quite often a third party it used to be, and then now an algorithm will, will, will say about you and your and your track record, that's what that's what decisions it makes. And that and that ultimately leads that that outsourcing, that lack of decision making, lack of planning, perhaps. Actually, no, perhaps about that almost certainly. 
Um, got some stats for that as well. You won't be surprised. Um, which then leads on to uh, kind of instability and dependence on the state in retirement. Yeah. Um, which is a, which is again a, it's a big a big talk, topic for me because I'm I'm not sure which came first, Ponzi or pensions, because they talk about a Ponzi scheme as the as the scheme where, you know, somebody you invest in. I mean, it was a guy called, wasn't this guy with the surname Ponzi? Yeah, I think so. I think that's where it came from. I can't, yeah, yeah. So you, give, you gave him your money. He then spent it. Someone else invested in him. And then he then gave that to the person who originally invested. And so the scheme continues. Um, and pensions, when they, were origin, when they were originally pitched to the public, was going to be a pot of money that you paid into that we could all, that you could then draw down on in retirement. It was going to be a public savings account. Um, and in reality, it was, wasn't, and is one, the current generation paying for the last generation of workers who don't have sufficient savings to sustain themselves. And it's not all, it's not everyone who claims a pension. And to, in, in, to, to many people, it's not, it's not their fault. It's, it, you know, they'll say, well, that's just the, it's just the way it is. Um, but it's one of those things. I was talking with a mate the other day. Um, and I said to him, it could, it could end with one generation. How's that? It's easy. If one generation says no, the next generation doesn't have to pay for them. Mm-hmm. But wait, they're saying no to paying for the previous generation. No, no. The one generation that says no to claiming it. You need a generation of people to make the selfless act and say no. No, I don't want to. I don't want. Any, but it needs to be the whole generation. It needs to be everybody saying no. But we're talking here just about state pension, right? Because if people, if people have a private pension, you are paying for your own pension. Oh, of course, yeah. That's com, com, completely separate issue. I'm talking about the, the the state the state kind of welfare for retirement pension. Got it. And I mean, but then I think to myself, and perhaps I kind of I, I don't know whether I kind of expose a bit of. Um, is nihilism too too harsh a term for it? Let's call it lack in faith in my fellow man. Um, and that's the, and this is according to, the source I found this on was finder.com. Um, and I just Googled something along the lines of how much saving, how much do people in the UK have in savings? Yeah. Well, one in 10 have no savings. None, not a penny. One in three have less than 600 pounds. Wow. This is all in 2020, by the way. And 41%, it's actually 40.73 or something, don't have enough to live for one month without income. Wow. So then I think to myself, that's the, that's the current state of affairs. So we're talking more than two thirds are in no position to, to start that. And no, I don't know the age profile of that because, you know, what you could be talking about here is comparing 18 year olds and 60 year olds and things like that. And they can be in completely different financial circumstances. So the, yeah. the statistics might be framed to look quite damning. So I feel like I need to say that if I'm going to be the person who says you can frame statistics how you want. This is just what I found on this is what I found on the Internet. But I feel like it's quite unlikely that in quite in in a society that I think is where they where actions are quite selfish. So individual actions are selfish, but then people claim moral high ground through making political decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, the actions we take by claiming money from the state, let's say, 
are a selfish decision. It's, we want that money. We feel like we're entitled to it um, or we need it, whatever it might be. But then we vote to say that, oh, other people should should be able to have that as well, rather than making the decisions through life to say that actually other people should just have a right to their income, the fruits of their labour. So this aspect of not having um, savings and stuff um, and, pe- and people not having en- enough money to kind of carry themselves through, how does that relate to what you were saying about trusting in um, experts or kind of external entities? The obvious um, external entity is the state with this. I don't need to save for retirement because the state will sort me out. I'll get a fuel subsidy. I'll get pension. If I don't have any savings, I'll even get an extra little top up on my pension. Um, so there's that there's that comfort blanket there. So we, we outsource our financial security. And historically, that was always something that was under the kit. And this is, I can't remember who it was who, who told me this, but something about, I, I saw something about it generational wealth and we used to have loads of multi-generational households used to be really common and what you would have is the parents own the house the kid lives in the house and then stays in the house and pays the pays the utilities for the house then inherits the house from the parents and you have this multi so the the retirement is almost funded by the children the children who who aren't necessarily paying to sustain and feed you because you would do that from your savings or from renting out another room to a lodger. But they would then, that house would then stay there. That would be a kind of base of operation, your piece of the world. Whatever your surname is, you could stamp it on the door and it's it's yours forever. Um, yeah. And it kind of stresses the importance of property rights in general, which is something that Thomas Sowell writes about a lot, how it's one of the bases for um for economic growth is property rights because people have got their their roots in but anyway i digress massively so there's obviously the the outsourcing to the state there yeah involved and people generally as well they outsource to banks custodians of their money who give them almost nothing in it's um give them nothing and take well they're they're also custodians of the property yes (laughs) interestingly (laughs) if you if you sorry go ahead I was just say if you if you if you owe them uh, if you owe them money on a mortgage, which I do on my house, owe money on a mortgage, uh, you know I'll pay it off eventually. Um, you know I'm not I'm not it's not some ridiculous forty year jobby that people do or just these interest only ones. It's quite common as well. But yeah, by default it's theirs. Yeah, and and interestingly as well, when, you know you were mentioning about um, people inheriting property from their family, but you've also got um, inheritance tax. It's like every avenue for people to actually maintain kind of sovereignty over their wealth or sovereignty over their property has these avenues are all being closed because every time there's not there's not option um the government closes that closes that down and says oh you know sorry now you can't hand down this you know that's classed as as a gift and if the gift is over a certain value then it gets taxed at this amount etc and people cheer this on. You know, I, I see this all the time. I don't know if you've um, if you're familiar with this guy Richard Burgeon. I think he's called this. Uh, I think he's a labor yeah. MP. Lab, labor MP, yeah, yeah. Oh, this guy. Honestly, honestly, I mean, I, I see him all the time in my feed, and I see people who are like awake, like liking these tweets by this guy who is, essentially, you know, people talk about populism. Sorry, I'm going to just digress a moment here. People talk about populism, but you know, this guy basically just completely has no respect at all for property rights. Every one of his tweets is just, we should take more money from this person. We should tax this person more. We should do this. We should, you know, people are selling million dollar homes. We need more of that money. And it's like, you know, just a complete 
just a complete disregard for property rights, um, first of all. And people actually really kind of sign on to this. You know, that in my opinion is true populism. You basically, you basically throw out first principles in favor of trying to kind of rally a minor, uh, rally a majority. You try and rally a populist movement, but rather than doing it by saying, we're gonna give you more rights and freedoms and more sovereignty over your assets, et cetera. You say, no, we're gonna take those people's stuff and we're gonna redistribute it. That, that's true populism in my view. Um, but anyway, to, to bring it back to the original point, um, people will kind of get on board with this stuff because they think, oh, well, that's just for billionaires. You know, they're just, they want these property taxes for billionaires. They want inheritance tax for billionaires and everyone else is gonna benefit from that. But what people will inevitably find is that all that's happening is that the state is inserting itself um, in between every transaction, you know, including things like um, giving your own property. And, and, and there's no doubt that this will grow like a cancer to the point where, you know, you want to you wanna give someone a television, you want to give your, uh, you know, especially when we have CBDCs coming in and stuff like this, everything will be tracked and it'll be like, oh, I want to give a television to my to my son or whatever that, that I've used for, you know, 10 years and now I want him to have it in his bedroom. And I'll be like, oh, well, that's now a taxable event. You know, sorry, that you technically gifted something. So we need to track the value. You know, we're now talking about um, unrealized gains and things. So if you if you have something, you haven't even sold it, the government wants to tax it. I mean, you know, people are celebrating this stuff because they think it's just going to apply to billionaires and, and millionaires. But um, to kind of come back to your original point, what's happening here is that the government is becoming a unnecessary intermediary between almost every interaction in life in order to kind of sustain itself, in order to, you know, it, it's like a parasite that needs to sustain itself. And everyone suffers everyone suffers because yes okay it might start with a billionaire and you know you can you can clap away because only one person has has um you know essentially had an unjust act done unto them but that's gonna um that's gonna find its way to trickle down that's the real trickle down economics right like it's the trickling down of tyranny from you know just tyrannizing billionaires and trying to take their assets to eventually it's arrived at your doorstep you said that but actually dodging dodging things like capital gains tax are actually they're surprisingly easy. You can you can dodge the majority of it with a trust, a trust fund. Um, the other way you, that you can do it is have your have your property owned by a company, and you just make your kid your the managing director. Yeah, you can even probably pay them a signing on bonus for taking control of the property. So when when people when this is one thing I find um, I, I find particularly interesting with this sort of as you describe it pop, quite aptly these populist. Um, political policies from people where they they'll say oh we need to tax the rich and we're going to do it this way by taking their property away and things like that they almost never feel a pinch of it no exactly their property is tucked away in multiple corporations in separate tax havens and things like that and and they'll they'll, they'll never see it. it's normal people it's it's normal people who own you know um something more than 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 average you know, uh, I think what's that? What's the rate if you if you're passing on a property? I think it's 500k is the value of the home. Anything under that, and I don't think there's capital gains tax. But but if you've got more than that, it's quite a big number for anything over that. It's about 40%. Yeah. And and we're not talking huge amounts. You know, if you live in South South Southeast, you know that's that's a it's a nice house, but it's nothing special. Yeah, probably in Newcastle or something, it would be a some, something quite special, but it, it, I don't think there's any consideration to regions or anything like that, nor should they be really if you're going to do something like that. But uh, I suppose the point is, I don't even think these things trickle down. They just start straight away 
up kind of the middle class and then work their way down from there. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because that, that is um, a big part of this is that all of these roles that people think that people are celebrating because, oh yeah, billionaires are going to pay more, millionaires are going to pay more, you know, regardless of the ethics of that, which I think is unethical, you know, unethical in itself because, you know, I don't see any reason to take more from people if it's been earned honestly and if people have honestly provided a good or service that people want to buy and that they have you know accrued wealth through that as far as i'm concerned there's no reason to steal from those people any more than there's real reason to steal from someone who's you know an average joe in the street but exactly to your point um those people aren't going to be affected anyway because they can pay a lawyer a fraction of that money um and they can make sure that they're unaffected by all of those regulations and rules and um that they're never going to pay that money anyway. So the people who it ends up affecting is always the middle class. And yes, okay, the working class aren't affected because they can't be squeezed anymore. You know, people say, oh, you know, the working class, they're not affected because, um, you know, this, that, or the other. Like, as soon as the working class earn more, they're going to be squeezed because they'll enter the middle class and then they will be affected by this stuff. Literally, the reason they're the working class is because they've been squeezed so much um, that there's nothing more to squeeze for them from them. So there's, there's no point in trying to get, um, you know, uh, for instance, uh, additional taxation out of people who, you know, as you, as you say, they don't have savings, they don't have any more money, they, they, you know, they can't, they can't be squeezed anymore. So what this inevitably does is just squeezes the middle class more. So the rich stay just as rich as they did. The middle class become um, increasingly to the level of working class where they can't be squeezed anymore. And the remaining people will just be taxed to oblivion in, in whichever form that takes. Hmm. Although there is a way, if we're going to if we're going to if we're going to switch to a bit of economics, there is a way that you can tax the working class quite effectively, um, and that's inflation. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Let's go there. It's a it's it's a uh, it's a great it's a great little weapon that you can use, and I mean the last couple of years have been a fantastic example of it, and that's where you can massively increase the supply of money. I think something like twenty to twenty five percent of all pounds and dollars that have ever existed were printed over the last 24 months. Mm -hmm. um, so you massively increase the supply of money and people think, oh, well, if you gave everyone a million pounds, you know, everyone would be better off. I mean, I'm not even gonna go into why that's stupid, but let's say we kind of part of that kind of comment. But if you massively increase the supply of money, you, by, by nature, you increase the price of things because there's more money about. If you don't then increase the minimum tax threshold to correspond with that increase in monetary supply that will inflate the price of everything by the same percentage. Because people talk about, oh, inflation was 8% or whatever. Yeah, she go around a supermarket, look at a petrol station, definitely look at your gas and electric bill. It's probably overall 15 to 20% inflation. Yeah. We haven't seen the minimum tax bracket increase by that amount. So everybody's paying a little bit more tax. Yeah. Even people earning 12, 13, 14K a year, which I think would be below minimum wage now anyway, but I think minimum minimum wage is floating around the 19K mark at the moment. And I mean, they'll be, they'll be paying more tax as a result of it as well. And it'll impact you more at that level as well. Um, there's a, I, I can't remember, I did, I did something on this a little while ago. I haven't got it, I haven't got it to hand. But it's um it's from memory, and you can. It, it, I increased the salary, annual salary, in in brackets of about two or three thousand. And if you do mission creep over a number of years, um, or bracket creep, I think is a I think 
um, Milton Friedman might refer to it as, with this inflating but not increasing the base tax rate. The higher your earnings, the less it affects you, obviously. Um, so despite the fact that you're paying, so you'll be paying more taxes, yes, obviously, but you, your disposable income is at, is at a rate where it can almost become beneficial after, about, it was after about four years I worked it out, it became beneficial if you were on a higher income um, to to have this um, bracket creep in such a way. But obviously it was it, it diminished fast the lower your income was. So yeah, you can you can hit the working class pretty hard just by just by increasing the supply of money and not raising the base level of uh, uh, the base income tax threshold. Yeah, and there's so many people who don't actually realise what inflation is. I think that if you if you were to ask people on the street and, and, and ask them what inflation is, they would just say, oh, well, you know, it's an increase in, in price and stuff, which is part of the story. But actually, most people wouldn't be able to say this is what is causing inflation. Like they would have no idea what the, the root causes are. And, you know, there is a, another definition of inflation, which is it's not measuring the increase in prices. It's actually measuring the increase in the monetary base without a proportionate increase in the goods and services rendered in a society. So you essentially just, you know, just printing money um, without actually having, you know, additional goods and services, et cetera, in a society is inflation. Now that causes price increases, but it's not defined by the price increases, right? And I think that's a really good definition because that people, it's easy to talk about inflation. People just don't understand it. And, um, you know, I really worry because we don't teach people about this stuff and, you know, People who are interested in it or, you know, who are kind of inclined like you or I, we're going to look into this stuff and then we're going to come to the conclusion that, okay, we need to adjust our financial strategy in a way that accounts for this effect. But most people, they think that inflation is just some, you know, magical thing that just occurs spontaneously and no one can quite control it and no one can understand it. And, you know, you can't really do anything about it. So you just have to deal with it as a society. And it's almost like, these people are getting away with it. You know, these people who are just printing money and flooding the system with liquidity in whichever way they want to kind of enrich themselves are getting away with it because people are just so financially illiterate that they just don't see what's going on. I mean, I don't know how you get around that problem without, well, I guess it's come back to come back to one of your three pillars, which is the education aspect, right? I, su I suppose, yeah. But I mean, I, I'm not sure. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hold out for education on, on proper ec economics um i know most economics subjects that you you see discussed i would describe as not you could just say actually it's not economics what we what we it's keen it's keynesianism or whatever you want to call it it's all the work of uh, what is it john maynard Keynes that you're that you'll learn in school yeah. about how we need to stimulate the economy by printing money and things like that so it won't come into it and one of my um, one of my favourite things to talk to people on this topic to see to see if I can blow their mind with it sometimes is actually if you don't play around with the supply of money. So let's say there's X number of pounds that are in circulation. That's the forever supply. This is why I like Bitcoin. There's X number. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna flip back to Bitcoin. I've got to do it. We couldn't not mention it, could we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to. We'll have to do a bit on it. Yeah. So there's X number of Bitcoin. That's it. 21 million is the magic number, although it's less than that if you consider lost ones and things like that. But let's stick with that 21 million. That's the number. If you increase the number of people, you increase the amount, you increase the requirement for products and services for those people. 
if you don't increase the supply of money, prices deflate. Yeah. They have to because there isn't enough money to go around. And that's what should happen in a monetary system that isn't interfered with. The, The measuring unit of the amount of money you have, the purchasing power of it should not go down. You should be able to buy more with your money this year than you could buy last year. That's that's how it should work with an increase in population, not the other way around. Yeah. And it's a it's quite a difficult one to explain though. <laughs> yeah, it is because we, you know, we are we've been propagandized with Keynesianism for all of these years as if this is just, you know, the obvious way to run an economy. And Austrian economics has just been kind of completely buried as a system. Um, as if it's some kind of quackery, even though it makes perfect sense. You know, I mean, Austrian economics is actually based upon true market economics and Keynesianism is based upon people coming in and, you know, waving a magic wand and expecting to be able to, you know, get something for nothing and, and to kind of perform this, these kind of financial, this kind of financial wizardry and make things happen in an economy. But eventually, the, you know, the market always comes back and bites in the arse. Anyone who tries to... Um, overcome it through their own, um, you know, ideas and opinions, you know, ultimately the the market has a way of operating and Austrian economics just aligns with that. It just aligns with the concept that people want a um, unit of account, which does not inflate, which is reliable, that nobody can just all of a sudden say, okay, there's loads more units now. And then you can truly price goods and services within a society, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things about this, and, you know, more people on the left should be on board with this, because I'd never thought about this, but I kind of uh, heard about this concept um, last year, and it kind of really blew my mind, which is, yes, of course, you expect um, the prices of things to come down, but you also expect the price of labor to come down as well, right? You are, because, you know, labor is just another um, thing in the economy, which is being affected by the monetary supply. And, but the interesting thing about this is that right now, every single year, you have to say, oh, hey, um, you know, you have to talk to your boss and say, I'm going to negotiate a raise, right? Because inflation's going up, at, as you said, probably somewhere around 15 to 20%. You need to keep up. So you have to go and, you know, ha- like hat in hand. And, beg your boss for a raise. But under an Austrian economic system, your boss would be coming to you and negotiating whether how much it goes down by. And you would be saying, look, I want to keep my I want to keep my wage the same. Maybe you want it to go up a bit, but it might be a matter of saying, just keeping my my salary the same, I'm actually um, net earning more because I can buy more goods and services with that money. That would be amazing for the kind of social ladder because it completely flips the dynamics between the employer and the employee to put the ball in the core of the the worker rather than the employer. I mean, leftists should be loving that. Exactly. It's um the thing is there's no short term there's no short term gain, and it doesn't work for I, I find I find with the political left, and the right's not much better these days because I'm I'm not a conservative I, I I'm not I'm hopeless really, but. The political left, it, it very much has its very basic slogans that appeal to that appeal to people who haven't thought things through. I find, yeah. So, so when you because when you discuss these policies and and the actual the actual probable impacts of them, people they haven't given it any thought. They think that you're speaking. Oh, that doesn't make any sense. When you when we talk about oh. 
it, the 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 power would flip to the labourer because the labourer has to say, well, my contract says you pay me, you pay me, uh, you know, one. I'm just going to make up one qualock an hour or whatever the currency is. I don't know why I picked that word. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what the currency said. That's that's my contract is is one an hour. So I'm not going to reduce it to ninety point nine five. No. Yeah. You need to keep paying me, or you know, you need to go and find someone else who hasn't got my same level of experience. And so you actually it, you give power to the labourer by not mucking it out with the financial system, as you say. But a lot of people won't won't think about it that way when they say, "Oh, but I don't understand how if there's more people, how the price of it can come down." Well, it's not the price; it's 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 the amount of money that it's the value of the transaction compared to the number of things. It's we're so ingrained this notion that things have to go things have to go up in pound value because we don't we don't see the well it's because I suppose there's no I suppose nothing's really got intrinsic value anymore, does it? Except for well, I mean let's you know, let's not ignore the elephant in the room in in, in, in Bitcoin because people say that's got no intrinsic value, but actually the market yeah. gives it that intrinsic value because there is a, a legitimate thing even though it's only digital it's a legitimate thing that you own that is just worth that what everything else that goes on around it is just noise it's just whatever it is one 0 0.1 0 0.05 whatever it is that's what you've got in, in, in that and the idea that you could buy more with that next that that 0 0.1 whatever it is that someone's got the idea that you could buy more with that next year than you can this year is mind-boggling to most people You'd have to. The only way you could do that is if you sold it and swapped it for pounds, and then you'd have more pounds or dollars or whatever it is. The the natural way that an economy wants to function, in my view, is it wants to have a truly scarce store of value. I mean, you know, really, money. The advent of money started with kind of precious metals, right? You know, obviously gold being a big one, but also silver and also you know nickel and copper and all of these these metals, which were had a scarcity aspect to them, you know, that that was the scarcity aspect was the, the important thing. I know people, you know, gold bugs and stuff will talk now about saying, oh, but you know, it has it has a uh, intrinsic value because it's got value as jewelry and this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, yes, it has value as jewelry because it has value as money and therefore flaunting your money involves putting it around your neck. But but why is it valuable as money? Go back to it. It's the scarcity. Gold is um, you know, yes, okay, you can use it in some electronics and stuff. There's an argument to be had there, but it's actual the, the value of gold as a for its use in electro, uh, electronics is absolutely tiny, right? So ultimately, scarcity is the key thing about money. Now, Bitcoin is is not just scarce, but it's also can be transacted, you know, almost fearless and at the speed of light. So this is what fundamentally changes the paradigm because gold. The reason it failed is because it's very difficult to to move about, right? Portability is an issue, yeah. Yeah, portability, divisibility, these things are all like an issue with gold. And they're not an issue with Bitcoin. Um, so it's solved for so many of these problems. And that's why I think that even though people don't really understand yet um, necessarily about Bitcoin or about the, they don't understand both the asset, but also the, the monetary theory that surrounds it. Um, but I think that people will be drawn into this thing out of sheer kind of economic necessity. People will look at this and say, "Why is this thing going up in value? Why is it, you know, why is this value valuable?" And ultimately, even people who they don't like Bitcoin, you know, economic rationality is a hell of a drug. I think you know you're gonna 
you're going to be pulled into this thing because you don't want to be um, just watching all of your assets or essentially your money melt like an iceberg. You know, you, you want to put your money where it's going to grow in value. And Bitcoin has the potential that no other investment in the world does. You know, nothing, nothing else does. I mean, including things like houses. Okay, houses have done pretty well um, over the past 50 years or whatever because they've done well in absence of a hard money. That you know they are serving the purpose of of scarcity because they're pretty scarce. You know they're a scarce asset. Uh, obviously, you know that there's only so many houses that can be built, etc. But they're not as scarce as Bitcoin. Like it, it's gonna, it's gonna, in my opinion, suck. Rightfully so, and this is another reason why people on the left should be getting on board with it. Is it's gonna suck the monetary premium out of houses, and that's gonna allow people to actually get in the housing market without having to getting huge amounts of debt, et cetera, and, and you know, pay off mortgages for the rest of their life because you can actually hold another asset which serves the, that purpose as being the, the scarce asset which um, accrues value over time. That can be your store of value and the house can be the thing that you buy and that you can actually live in and own without taking on huge amounts of debt. And that, that won't serve the monetary premium, but it will give you a, a roof over your head and kind of escape you from debt slavery. It has its utility. Yeah. It has its utility, a house, doesn't it? That's it. That's the that's the thing that it's um that's the other thing that drives its value is you need more people than houses don't you more buyers than sellers I think people will get there eventually I think so I think so I think that some people will it will be kicking and screaming but eventually you know it, it's a Bitcoin is like a black hole um you know you don't necessarily need to understand it to benefit from it and I think a lot of people will come to that but ju just to zoom this back out to your kind of um three main pillars because I feel like we've gone down several rabbit holes and maybe not address the uh you know the, the, the kind of core core issue or, or certainly not refer back to it so um I, I'll just throw that back over to you to kind of like tie this into to those um kind of three key areas that you were mentioning at the beginning to just kind of tie this whole conversation up and then we'll start rounding off I guess Cool. Um, well, I mean, as we were partway through wealth and we had to talk about Bitcoin, didn't we? And I, I, I think um, one of the things that resulted in us being in this kind of in this situation where nobody has nobody has any kind of financial backing, nobody has any security, is that nobody follows the concept and this is of pay yourself first. Have, have you ever read the book, The Richest Man in Babylon? No. No, it's a, it's a, I'd, rec I'd recommend it. I'd recommend it to anyone listening to this. It won't cost you much to buy. Um, it's a little book. Um, it was written in the 1920s. Can't think of the guy's name who wrote it now for the life of me, but it's based um, on this character called Arkad, who was uh, in ancient Babylon 4,000 years ago. And these kind of financial principles that, that he has that are the key to getting rich. And the first one is pay yourself first. He has an argument, not an argument, but he has a conversation with someone in the book about it. And uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, I don't remember it word for word, except for those three, the pay yourself first. And the person says, well, I do pay myself. I, I go and buy clothes and I get myself food and I, I pay my rent and that's that's all for me. So I've got my house or I buy the bricks for my house and things like that. And he's, no, you're, you're paying other people. That's, you, you, you've, You've paid them for the clothes. You've paid them for that food. You've paid them for that trinket. You've paid them for that cup or whatever it, whatever thing they might have been buying at the time. And I think this is a, this is another thing, and it's something that we outsource again. Um, and that's that's the the what we buy. 
I don't think people give enough thought to the things they buy. And I know how, I, I, this is another revelation I've had, I'll kind of draw back to at the end because I kind of got some ideas on how you can how you can kind of accept, accept and try to start overcoming these things. But, and this is very much a symptom of social media. This is another thing, because when I came off Twitter, I came off everything, Facebook, Instagram, everything. I, you know, I wasn't, I was myself on those platforms. I didn't have a yeah. secret profile where I was this kind of, this angry libertarian <laughs> who uh, just moaned about everything. Um, and what I found was when I wasn't subjecting myself to this constant direct marketing, I wasn't buying pointless bits anymore. Just tap from just kind of made in China tap that people buy all the time. Con this is constant stream of it. And actually it goes back to, it goes back to this principle of paying yourself first, because that's what's talked about in this book. In, it was written in 1926 about this character from ancient Babylon is people, people buying tack, just bits and bobs that they don't need. And it's because they saw an advert in a paper or like we do, we saw it on the, on the magic shiny thing that everybody walks around looking at in their hand. But incidentally, I don't look at anywhere near as much anymore without social media. Um, but we outsource so many of our decisions to technology is kind of where I was going with this or technology or media just in general, just by allowing ourselves to be bombarded with these things and spending our money and not paying ourselves first as a result. Um, and the idea of the paying yourself first is saving. That's all it is. That's all he's talking about. It saves some money and it gives you a, a, a comfort for, for retirement. Um, so we, didn't go, we didn't get into education, this, did we? I, I think we need to... Uh, we we kind of uh, we alluded to it. Do you want to touch on it, or do you want to do you want to save it for? We could save it another conversation, but if you have got time, like I'm happy to go into it. Yeah, I think so. I, I haven't got I haven't got that many notes on this because I'm not going to proclaim to being an. A, 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 I'm not an education expert, but it's definitely something we outsource. So yeah, most most mostly to the states. Um with with state schools filled with you know with activist teachers i'm not the only person who says things like that i think it's it's quite a common thing what i find hilarious about that though with the number of activists you have in state schools is that in the uk there is literally legislation that makes it illegal for radicalization of children in schools and it, you look at the state that some come out with climate alarmism and things like that. It's it's no different than any other kind of ultra conservative apocalyptic warning, and you know, the sinners will get us all killed because instead of being instead of God smiting us or whatever smiting us, it's it's CO two and so they they come out they come out radicalized anyway, even though apparently there's rules against it, which um. Which is brilliant. But the other, the other big thing that we outsource with, because education kind of brings in raising your kids, it does, and it's a touchy subject for a lot of people. It's raising your kids, and so many kids now are raised by technology. They're raised by their smartphones, by their iPads, by the television, by YouTube channels, listening there with headphones, playing video games like Minecraft. Which, to me, Minecraft is literally the video game equivalent of manning a deserted checkpoint in soviet russia in the 1970s it's literally a video game here you go you go to this point and you just stand there and do nothing what, what am i looking for nothing <laughs> no one's coming you just stand there 
And, and there's kids playing here. They're, they're prepped. They're ready to follow instructions. This is what you do. You need to put the, you put the block over there and that's it. Oh, nobody goes, why? What's the point? Is it just communism in the metaverse? <laughs> it's, it's bizarre. It's, I, I, was, I was watching it. I was talking, talking with my niece and nephew. Why do you do? Why do you put that there? I just you just do. What's that? <laughs> it's a, there's, there's no point to it. So it is the ultimate. And yeah, what do you do? You just put the, you just move that box from that place to that place, and that's that's uh, that's what I do, day in day out. It's it's not it's like something. It's like out of Brave New World or something like that. Because people always talk about 1984 when they talk about dystopian. Looks well, it's great because it is. I think Brave New World is yeah. is probably closer in a way to to what we're to what we're seeing. Yeah, I've heard that a few times. I've not read it yet, but I, I really want to. I've I've heard that it's uh, there's a lot of parallels there. Yeah, it's 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 a brilliant it's a brilliant brilliant read. Great great characters and but yeah, that type of thing where people are born for a purpose. Yeah, it would kind of make sense into that you know they they would have their social great and their job is to just move boxes from this place to that place and that's what they do and there'll be other statuses and they have other purposes in society which are higher and they might need to be able to think critically so yeah we outsource a lot of those things to and, and video, other video games as well um you know ones with and i'm not going to sit here and be like oh you know violent video games and why kids are violent because there's more to it than that but i worry sometimes that you know these um it's got to have an effect, isn't it? You know, a young kid without context playing a video game like Call of Duty, is, it's, got to, it's got to have an effect and, and some kind of detachment. But I don't know enough about psychology really to fully comment on it. But with this kind of never-ending supply of flashing images and sounds and, and interesting things to look at that come from that come from this smartphone that you know mommy and daddy are sitting there looking at non-stop they're, they're flicking through face. oh God, look at what look at that cat um non-stop i worry that they haven't got they won't have an imagination yeah i, I don't know i don't know how old you are but i mean i i'm 36 coming on 37 and i um smartphones and phones weren't even a thing when i was a kid and i'm not even that old but when i was little there wasn't there was no phones we yeah same played same. with sticks and played hide and seek manhunt things like that we'd go out and use our imaginations and because people think oh it's just imagination what's that well actually imagination is like one of the most important things if you want to solve a problem you need to be able to imagine a solution you need to be able to think um read a, book, a psychology book and there's a concept in it called counterfactuals so if you've heard of it, basically what it is, is putting yourself in a situation and simple. quite often, you know, when you make a decision and it goes wrong and you think, oh, if only I'd done that, then it might have gone differently. That's counterfactual thinking. But using your imagination to create a scenario where you're playing a game or where you're fixing a problem where you're going, well, actually, if I turn that the other way and slide it in there at work, that's also counterfactual thinking. And, and you practice that when you're a kid. That's what they're doing. They're making up friends and they're the stick isn't a stick it's a lightsaber or whatever it might be yeah. and they don't need that because they can, well, you can get a cheap lightsaber made you know you're made in china for seven quid or whatever or you can have, play this video game and there's you don't need to you put on this headset and you can just it's all real you don't need to imagine and i know what i worry that that will that will have um that will have a lasting effect yeah i, I remember when i was younger i always used to think oh god you know 
these these kind of older people who kind of look down on me playing video games, you know, whether it was grandparents or whatever, it's like, oh, you're playing too many video games. And I was like, oh, you know, I'll never be that old person. I'll be the I'll be the cool old person who kind of <laughs> looks at who looks at kids playing video games. And I'm like, yeah, you go play those video games, you know, like have fun, enjoy yourself. And you know, I'm uh, like, I'm 31, and I'm already that. I'm already that old person who <laughs> looks at kids playing video games. I'm like, go out and play with sticks. Go out and ride your bike. You know, I mean, for me, technology came a bit later. Like, I, I think I had maybe I had a Game Boy was like my first bit of technology or something. Or actually, no, it was, it was like a Sega Mega Drive. And but even then, it was like you play it with your friends. It was like everything was like two player from what I remember. And you play with your friends, and then you. You know, you, you go out and you play and during the summer it was always outside. And yeah, I mean, where I'm where I'm from, like I'm from quite a rural area. And uh, when we were younger, you would go out and you wouldn't even call your friends to say who's playing out. You just go out on the street and they would be there. You'd, you'd walk around, you go to the to the field or whatever. The, the kids were all there playing football. You wouldn't even need to organize it. And when I go back there now, and I know it's just as many kids, if not more, because, you know, the village has doubled in size since I lived there. But there's no kids out on the street, you know, like that they're, they're not out playing. You, you just don't see it as much. And, you know, I'm pretty sure this is because kids now are so much more ingrained with technology, which, you know, and I'm not saying there's no benefits to that. Like, I'm sure that that's useful. We need technologically engaged kids because technology is such an important part of, you know, being a human now. But like getting rid of play, like traditional play that we're kind of genetically predispositioned for, you know, that we've evolved to do. I agree. Like I, it worries me that we're, we're missing out on a really crucial aspect of learning to be a human by getting rid of that. And yeah, I mean, I don't have kids, but if I had kids, I would probably be very restrictive on how much technology I would allow them to to engage with. And even though that seems maybe I'm being the authoritarian, like as a parent, you kind of are the authoritarian uh, figure in your child's life, at least for their formative years. And, you know, I, I would be I would be very hesitant to allow them to spend too much time with um, using technology. Well, there's a, the, the thing with that, and I completely, I completely and utterly agree with you on that. And the, and the, the thing that comes around, and this actually, this will actually shine a light on one of the points where I say about, you know, the things you can do to get around this, is that the reality is for a lot of parents, it's just much easier to do it. So, because if you, if you don't do that, you just play with your kid. Yeah. They say, I want to play, I want to play Spaceman. You're, you're coming to get me. And you've got to join in, you've yeah. got to play, because the, the phone's not there to do it for you. So you've got you've got yeah. to be the one who's there. You've got to be the one who's helping them imagine that scenario and play that game. That's that's your job. So I think that's the thing, because you, you say you're kind of being authoritarian by by saying, no, you can't do that. But really, you're not saying, no, you can't do that. You're, it doesn't even become an option, because you're, you're there. Yes. You're there, and you're the game, you're the, the first source of information, affection engagement everything that you can think of that's that's like your number one job and that's one thing actually you know oh we want to go for a night out or we want to crack open a bottle of wine here play with the ipad or something like that and um this is what i was going to say is one of the one of the ways that you can um one of the ways you can get over this stuff think for yourself where you know and start to um make decisions for yourself in general is, is to admit your laziness because we all, when you outsource a decision, you don't want to have to think about it. So it's just got, admitting to yourself that actually, do you know what? 
the reason why I'm letting someone else make this decision for me is because I can't be bothered to. And either that will either that will bother you or it won't. For me, if I do that to myself, that bothers me. I'm like, well, actually, hang on a sec. Should I be should I make it, be making this decision for myself? Um, and that in turn makes you accountable. And that was one of my other things. I wrote down: be accountable. Yeah. Be accountable for your decisions. Own own what you're doing. Own you know, and that's whether it goes right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of um. I'll, whip back to finances very very quickly here and that's something that a lot of people do where they, they outsource the decision on borrowing they enter into enter into a financial agreement that they're not sure they can afford to pay because it's something that they want to buy and then it's the lender's fault that they entered into that agreement even though they had the money and they had the service they just didn't can't couldn't pay it back but that was the lender. It's their fault. They shouldn't have lent it to me. They don't take ownership of that decision. Yeah. So you, you've got to, uh, uh, that's all I'll say on that. I mean, it's just an example of where people don't own their decisions. And I suppose bringing back to this kind of counterfactual thinking um, is use it. Picture yourself in the future. Do better. Imagine a version of yourself that's making their own decisions and, and you know whether that's with money, whether that's with health, whether that's with your kids, or whatever it might be, you know, use use this. It's there. It's an amazing, amazing. I'm tapping my head while I said that. I realise it's a it's a podcast. <laughs> use use your <laughs> use your head. I don't want to go too inspiration, but don't wait for other people to do the right thing as well. Well, before you do, I actually want you to go inspirational. But before you do, because I like that to be the last thing is the inspirational message. So. First of all, let people know. I don't know if they can find you now because you're not on Twitter. But maybe if you're not letting people know where they can find you, say hi to the Twitter fam and then give us your your inspirational message and then we'll, we'll sign it off there. Cool. So, yeah. Um, I miss it as well a little bit. I miss you all, the Twitter, the Twitter folks, <laughs> the Twitter fam. It's nice, actually. You see something, something comes up, you see it in the news, and you know that there's a load of people, thousands, that you can go and you can relate to and go, do you know what? This really wound me up, and I know it wound you up too. Uh, <laughs> let's all have a good moan about it. And I do kind of miss that a bit. I do. I, I won't lie. But, yeah, you'll be better off without it, though. I bet you edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, right. Inspirational message, go. And then we'll then we'll leave it there. So yeah, it's that don't wait for other people to do the right thing. I think so so often we we sit down and we go, oh, there's no point doing the right thing because no one else will do it. Everyone else is just doing the easy thing. But but don't. There's there's ways you can do it and there's there's benefits to it. I I use the example of buying tack from China all the time. And I made a policy a few months ago that I won't buy anything from that's been made in china and i don't know if anyone knows it's incredibly difficult to do um you've got to do like painstaking research for hours and things like that the result the result of it is i, I won't drag on and on and on about it but the result is um that i end up shopping local more often than not or worst case or, or british um from other from from british companies or you know worst case european this bottle this was a saga. It's made in Switzerland. It took me a year to find a water bottle that wasn't made in China. Wow! But it was worth it. And I don't. I don't. Um, the result. The result of it is, I don't. You know, this like buying little tack and oh yeah, buy this, buy that. I don't buy any of it now. 
I hardly spend any money anymore just by just by doing that. Um, but yeah, but, but the point is, it's not you, you don't have to go and do that. It's whatever you believe in. Don't wait for someone else to do it. If you know that you can do it, if if we're all going to say sit here and say we're libertarians, we believe in free market. The most important one is the vote. The most important vote is the vote with your wallet. Start voting with your wallet now, everyone. Awesome. Thanks, Adam. It's been great. Take it easy.